Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Thursday, the 26th of August. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Katrina Blouse. Hey, how are you, Tom? Very well, thank you. That's good. Today on The Briefing, we're going to be diving into regional Australia's race against Delta. It's all happened really quickly. We um, had no community transmission of COVID until this outbreak. We had a couple of people off cruise ships at the very beginning. We had been spared the pandemic and then all of a sudden it just started to spread like wildfire. So that's the mayor of Dubbo describing a hectic situation, almost Mm. like whiplash where there was nothing and all of a sudden there are 275 cases just in the last two weeks. So with small hospitals and a slow vaccine rollout. The race is now on, so we'll explain the regional Delta situation in today's briefing. But first, we're going to give you a snapshot of all the news you need to know for today. Australia is top of the Paralympic medal tally after day one with six gold medals. Molly Petricola, your first Paralympics. Just a lazy world record this morning and now a gold medal. Well done. <laughs> Thank you so much. I honestly like am so surprised that that just happened. <laughs> How beautiful. That's Emily Petricola there, audio courtesy of the Channel 7 Network. She and Paige Greco both took out gold in their respective 3,000 metre pursuit cycling finals yesterday. Yeah, amazing. And then following our success in the pool at the Tokyo Olympics, uh, Lakeisha Patterson and William Martin claimed gold in the men's and women's 400 metre freestyle finals. And Rowan Crothers and Ben Popham also took out gold in the men's 50 and 100 metre freestyle, respectively. Yeah, what a gold rush. And uh, we're beating China. So China's second to us. We've (laughs) got two medals on them for now. US isn't even in the top 10 at the moment, but I'm sure all of this is going to change. It is after day one. Uh, There is going to be some more gold on offer for the Aussies today at the velodrome and in the pool. The preliminary stages also continue in wheelchair, basketball and uh, table tennis. And the United States has officially confirmed it will withdraw from Afghanistan on August 31, which is Tuesday. We are currently on a pace to finish by August the 31st. The sooner we can finish, the better. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. But... The completion by August 31st depends upon the Taliban continuing to cooperate and allow access to the airport for those who were were transporting out and no disruptions to our operation. So that was President Joe Biden speaking after yesterday's G7 meeting. To give you some stats, the US has now airlifted 22,000 passengers out in the last couple of days. A US military aircraft is leaving Kabul every 45 minutes. Yeah, and Australia has flown out 950 in the last 24 hours and 2,650 since the Taliban took control of the capital. Some 2,650 people now in the course of the last 22 flights have now been evacuated from Kabul back to AMAB and they are already returning home now to Australia. Yeah, a lot of relief for those Aussies, I'm sure. So that was the PM Scott Morrison in Parliament yesterday. Reports out of Kabul say the Taliban is now blocking access to people trying to access the airport. Earlier this week, you might remember, the Taliban was urging Afghans to stay to help and rebuild the country. Queensland and Western Australia have moved to shore up their borders with rising COVID cases in Victoria and New South Wales. Yeah, the Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk announced all arrivals from New South Wales, the ACT and Victoria are banned from entering and that started at midday yesterday. That's because the state's quarantine system is full. So we simply just do not have any room at the moment. We are 
are reassessing, we are looking at other options, but Queensland is being loved to death. So we're asking uh, people to understand we're putting on this pause. I don't get that. I mean, New South Wales is taking thousands of people into quarantine every day. I think it's politically popular, Tom. I don't Mm. mean to be a cynic, but we didn't have any cases yesterday and I think people are Mm. very concerned here that it's being brought into the state rather than there being any community transmission happening at the moment. Meanwhile, Western Australia has classified the entire state of New South Wales as an extreme risk and that kicked in at 12.01am this morning. This is the first time that category is being used. We don't take these decisions lightly. Uh, We don't take these decisions because we want to. We do them because we want to protect the Western Australian community. That was the WA Health Minister, Roger Cook. Yeah, I understand that, um, I guess, New South Wales ended up in a bad situation and it came from a limo driver related to hotel quarantine. I guess Mm. it just sounded a little bit disingenuous to say, oh, it's full. It's like, well, no, you're not really trying to have a high volume of people come through hotel quarantine. I think you've nailed it, Tom. I think you've absolutely nailed it. (laughs) And meanwhile, hospitals in West and South West Sydney are struggling to cope after New South Wales recorded that record high, 919 COVID cases yesterday. Almost 80% of the state's available intensive care beds are now full. Uh, 17% of them are coronavirus patients. At all points in that system, we're under enormous strain. Hospitals are full even without COVID. So, of course, every case of COVID that we're seeing puts more pressure on the system and takes away somewhat from our ability to look after non-COVID illness. And so that's AMA New South Wales President Dr Danielle McMullen speaking on the project. Also, nine newspapers are reporting the HSC exams could be pushed back to November with some exams even forced to be cancelled. Yeah, the New South Wales Education Standard Standards Authority Board has suggested to the government that exams be postponed in order to allow more full-time students to be fully vaccinated. And uh, if you're ever having a chat with Kanye West anytime soon, you're going to have to call him a different name, Tom. The 44-year-old rapper has just filed a petition to change his name to simply Yee. Yeah, no middle name, no last name anymore, just Yee. <laughs> so in documents filed with the Los Angeles Superior Court, the father of four cited personal reasons for the change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, um, Jesus, ye, um, what next for Kanye? Um, he's been on a bit of a journey the last couple of years, hasn't he, a with his divorce journey. from Kim? And, yes. Yeah, and people uh, still waiting go- for the album. It's true. It doesn't go through straight away. A judge has to approve that petition before it becomes official. Yeah, the other interesting music story, um, also out of America, um, the baby from one of the most famous album covers of the 90s, Nirvana's Nevermind. So it was a cover with a, a naked baby swimming underwater, chasing after a digitally imposed dollar bill on a fish hook. Well, that baby's mm. now 30 years old. His name's Spencer Eldon and he's suing the band. Yeah, so this is interesting. He alleges he was sexually exploited. Um, His lawyers are arguing that the image looks like child porn and that the baby is made to look like a sex worker because it is chasing that dollar bill. And also, I think this is more to the point, um, his family never signed a release form. His dad was a mate of the photographer on the day and he was only paid 200 bucks. Yeah, and they didn't realise it was going to end up on a Nirvana album cover. It wasn't Mm. specifically taken for that purpose. They haven't made any money out of it. So I don't really buy the argument about sexual exploitation necessarily, but I do buy the argument that they should get a fair bit of money. I'd I'd say millions. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that it's on T-shirts, it's on posters, it's mm. everywhere. It's an iconic image. And if if he is the, the baby in that image, um, they couldn't have done it without him. So you need some to be compensated for that. Yeah, apparently he's got a, a Nevermind tattoo, but there was a, <laughs> some quotes from him saying he just always wondered how much money they made from it and why he was famous for that but never got anything from it. Yeah, fair enough. All right, in a moment, COVID in the regions. We've heard a lot about how COVID is affecting people living in major cities, and that's because until very recently, many communities in regional Australia hadn't even recorded a single COVID case. In some towns, though, that's changing fast, and that's thanks to Delta. Shepparton is one of them. Here's Lauren, a briefing listener from Shep. Friday morning, it was a pretty quick turnaround from a very sort of COVID normal morning to pretty stressful by about lunchtime. And then Friday night, I could see huge, huge long lines for testing and hundreds within an hour or two by the time the news broke. People are waiting over five hours to be tested, but happy to. They're doing what's necessary to get the job done, basically. That's Lauren from Shepparton. It really paints a picture, doesn't it, Katrina, of what it's like to go from zero in Shepparton's Mm. case to over 50 in just a few days. Yeah, and if you go to a place like Dubbo in New South Wales, it's even worse. Two weeks ago, zero. Now they're over 250 and climbing. They've been getting between 10 and 30 daily cases for the last week, with at least half of those under investigation on most days. So that means those numbers could keep climbing. And there's, I guess, one thing working against these communities, which is small hospitals and and limited health facilities. And one thing working for them, Katrina, which is you could vaccinate them really quickly. Yeah. So in this briefing, we're going to dive into regional Australia's race against Delta. Stephen Lawrence is the mayor of Dubbo. Stephen, what does Dubbo look like right now where you've gone from zero to 250 plus in just two weeks? Look, it's all happened really quickly. We um, had no community transmission of COVID until this outbreak. We had a couple of people off cruise ships at the very beginning. But yeah, we had been spared the pandemic and then all of a sudden it just started to spread like wildfire. It's been reported um, in the Australian newspaper that was actually brought to our region by a drug dealer who travelled to southwest Sydney to get a stash. So if that's true, it certainly shows the dangers of that sort of unregulated travel in terms of the epidemiology of it all is that our rate of climb has been really disturbing from the beginning and it continues to be disturbing. There's no real sign that we're on top of it. So what's the mood like with people in Dubbo and how's it impacted on your daily way of life? Look, we went into lockdown pretty much straight away, which uh, we hadn't been in since that beginning time of it all. What we're seeing in the Dubbo region, you know, particularly when you bear in mind that well over half of our cases are in the Aboriginal community, is we're seeing the real differential impact of lockdown. You know, for some people like me, it's comparatively easy, pretty small household. But then for other people living in housing estates, people living in small overcrowded houses, it's incredibly difficult. And we're seeing things like the sheer number of people that have become close and casual contacts, having all of these consequences on the capacities of certain businesses Mm. uh, to continue to operate. 
For example, our supermarkets have been down to half staff just because of the sheer number of close and casual contacts. And to make that point, in the first week of this, I had four text messages, maybe five, as a consequence of visiting certain businesses. And I was in isolation because of that for about a week. Another thing really compounding it is that we're getting test results taking up to six days in some cases. Wow. So oh people are doing the right thing. Uh, they're lining up at the drive-in testing at the showground or wherever, and they're waiting three, four, five, six days. A lot of collateral consequences that are affecting all of the community in, I think, ways largely that we didn't foresee. Yeah, it's really interesting to think how people are affected in a small community when you say you've got two main supermarkets, you've got the Coles and the Woolies, if one of them becomes an exposure site, there's so many important close contacts there and, and some of them maybe then live with people who work at the hospital, which is another really concerning area as the vaccine rollout races against your hospital capacity. Mm. Um, what, what are you seeing in terms of the way really critical workers like healthcare workers are being affected by this in your community? Yeah, we've had uh, health workers impacted. We've had people working in the pathology area that are analysing tests impacted. There is a prioritisation in terms of access to quick testing for certain types of workers, particularly health workers, so that um, is assisting. To speak on the positive, huge amount of volunteering going on, uh, the testing facilities being to a significant degree staffed by volunteers and a real community effort to make things work as well as they can, but really difficult circumstances. What can you tell us about how it's impacting on the Indigenous community there in Dubbo, but also further west? How, how worried are you? They're vulnerable in terms of disproportionately present health issues and outcomes. Yep. Uh, they're vulnerable also, though, in terms of community transmission risks because you're talking about very closely knit communities with people living in some ways in quite a different way, big households. I mean, if you're talking about the Mali in Mulcanya, you're talking about substandard small houses in many cases, large households. The task of controlling community transmission is just extremely difficult. Then you have to look at the vulnerabilities in terms of testing and healthcare because it is more difficult to get tested there. And what we know about COVID is that if you are tested later and therefore are not treated in a timely way, then your health outcome can be worse. And of course, everyone knows that we don't have the same health services um, in the region. So for an Aboriginal person uh, in Gadooga, in Walgut, uh, in Wulkanya, it's just a dreadfully concerning scenario to see the COVID mm. numbers jump there. And we've got now, I think, almost 35 or 40 cases in Wilcannia alone. So Wilcannia is getting hit hard and there's every reason realistically to think that it's it, it will continue to spread in those communities. So just so important for everyone there to get vaccinated, I would have thought. That's Stephen Lawrence, Mayor of Dubbo, painting, painting a very visceral picture of what it's like there, Katrina. Yeah, and uh, just, you know, the, the fear, I guess, that everyone's feeling because they've never had to go through this before. Let's take a look now about what it's like for frontline health workers who are part of that big race. Dr John Hall is the president of the Rural Doctors Association of Australia, and he joins us now. John, thanks for joining us. What do you think are the biggest pressure points for these communities that are seeing cases rise very quickly? The biggest concern now is making sure that we have enough doctors and nurses on the ground 
to form part of the response, so dealing with the additional cases and, and the impact on the health system, but also making sure that we're able to ramp up the vaccine delivery and increase that vaccine rate into these communities. So how are you logistically going about sending staff to where they most need to go, given it's kind of like putting out spot fires, isn't it? It is, um, absolutely. And, and what we're learning in the Western New South Wales response with the outbreak in far western New South Wales is we're sort of chasing our tail a little bit out there. Ideally, rural communities need to be prepared before there's an outbreak. What we'd like to see is high vaccination rates in areas before we start to see case numbers. But I think the rest of rural Australia can learn from this. I think across the country, there's been a level of complacency, thinking that the bush is somewhat protected because of distance. But we know that a COVID outbreak is only one road trip away from most country towns in Australia. And at the end of the day, it's about being prepared and, and making sure we've got that capacity to ramp up vaccine delivery in these communities. So where do you think we're at now in Western New South Wales? Because two weeks ago we had zero cases, then we saw cases getting into communities like Wilcannia and there was a big funeral there that was really concerning. You've got case numbers in Dubbo quite high, um, which is a real hub for that further Western region of New South Wales. Do you think we're in big trouble there? The, the outbreak is continuing and we're expecting the case numbers to rise. Yes, it's concerning, but what we're seeing is some of the highest vaccination rates that have been experienced in the world. So the ability to wow. deliver vaccine rapidly across the last two weeks has been significant. Mm. So it's, it's been a rapid and coordinated response. What about vaccine hesitancy then? So you haven't really seen that that much in the regions. What this has done is really, I think, brought it front of mind to those communities that when there's cases growing in your backyard, it makes people think twice about that hesitancy. And, and I think it's probably the only silver lining in an outbreak out there is it's driven away some of that hesitancy and we've seen people coming sort of in droves to get vaccinated. I imagine the biggest threat is hospital capacity. How's that going? If we see even more than one case of critical COVID in these hospitals, it could really um, overwhelm the facility and decrease its capacity to deal with other emergencies in the community. And remembering these towns only have one hospital and some of them, it might be a two or three hour drive to the next facility. In some cases, a six or seven hour drive to the next hospital. What I'm hearing there is this is a real race against the clock that will come down to the next few weeks where you have this opportunity to vaccinate quickly, but you're on a very thin wedge with these mm. hospitals. They could easily be overwhelmed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other key component to this is sort of the public health response, you know, contact tracing and the ability to rapid test. But having said that, the contact tracing is much harder in rural areas, you know, with the distance, a lot of people in the community tend to be transient and mobile. So, the logistics of contact tracing and managing the public health response is challenging in rural areas, but the health department in New South Wales, LHD, are doing a fantastic job. Are you optimistic that with that combination of rolling out the vaccines and, and that collaboration with all the health services and also that incredible community spirit that you get in the bush, that we can get on top of this? Absolutely. You know, we're seeing people responding, being willing to get the jab, our advice at the moment is get any jab that you can. The best vaccine is the one that's in your arm. We know both vaccines are very safe and effective and they certainly prevent you from going to hospital or getting seriously unwell. So it is a race against the clock. If people aren't vaccinated, 
they're much more likely to become seriously unwell. And as I said before, that runs the risk of having multiple presentations or multiple critically unwell patients in these hospitals, which could really, you know, essentially shut down some of the health services in these communities. That was Dr. John Hall, president of the Rural Doctors Association, giving us a good overview of the challenge and the race happening in regional Australia. Mm. I guess what really stood out for me listening to those interviews on the ground is, you know, the the extra hurdles everyone living in in regional Australia has to overcome. Like we in the city, we get annoyed, Tom, if like our test results don't come back within 24 hours and we can't get back to work. These guys are waiting like six days and they're also being turned away from being vaccinated and yet they're still showing up. They're still doing the right thing. Hats off, guys. You also get that sense of life in a country town where everyone goes to the same supermarkets or has to go to the same GP clinic. And so if it starts to spread, you're in trouble very quickly. And it's taking a lot of important people out of the workforce when they have to self-isolate. That's right. So, um, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for everyone who's doing it tough in the regions right now. Fingers crossed we can Mm. win that race and get on top of it really soon. Well, yeah, they've got so many agencies working together, the Defence Force, the Royal Flying Doctors, um, Mm. local health authorities, GPs. So far in Dubbo, vaccination rates are roughly in line with national average, but they do seem to be speeding up with that higher level of first doses. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the rise of stay-at-home dads. Listener.